again. It's going to sound strange to you because I'm just here this morning and not back for three weeks, but um, I want to begin a three-part sermon series. Now, you're not going to hear it all this morning, um, but about a, about a subject that we're all, all of us, from the youngest to the oldest, we're all invested in, uh, something that we all have in common, and that's life, L-I-F-E, right? We've all got life, uh, and, and, and when we... Uh, when we think or when someone, uh, uh, someone is doing something or saying something that's stupid, uh, you'll hear somebody saying, get a life. Have you ever said that to somebody? Or has somebody ever said it to you? Get a life. Um, so let me begin by asking uh, you a question. What is life all about? What is life all about for you? Um, now, if you're like me, you might say, well, I don't really know the answer to that question. Um, but if I know anything, uh, all I can say is that life's busy. Amen? You know that life's busy. And maybe more often than not, we would say, well, life's a bit of a mystery. A bit of a mystery. And even if that's so, it's also been observed that the mystery of life is not a problem to be solved, but it's a reality to be experienced. And so the question then becomes, what does that reality of life really look like? What should it look like? What governs that reality of life as we live it out, as we experience it? Now, from a purely humanistic perspective, we could take the advice of someone who said, well, life is like a camera. Just focus on what's important. Capture the good times. Develop from the negatives. And if things don't turn out, take another shot. Um, but as God's people, our mandate for living life comes from God uh, through Paul, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 and 1, who said, "Life, live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. I could ask the question, are you, am I living a worthy life these days? Worthy insofar as God is concerned. The truth is that we don't have another shot at life. Um, and if there's, there's an old saying that says, only one life, it will soon be passed. And only what's done for Jesus will last. And so beginning today, and then when I come back on September the 29th, uh, when I get back from my, my Canadian sort of little trip there, uh, I want to explore life from God's perspective. Life as God intends it to be for all of us. Because Paul declared in Acts 17 and 28 that it was in him that we live and we move, and we have our being. And so this morning, I want to sort of back up, if you like, into this three-part series by looking at what it means to live the Spirit-led life. The Spirit-led life. And then, September the 29th, morning service, we'll look at what it means to live an abundant life. Jesus said in John 10 and 10, I am come that you might have life. We know we have life. And that they might have it more abundantly, he said. And the question is, are we living the abundant life? We look at that in the morning of Sunday the 29th. And then in the evening of that same Sunday, we look at the essence of, of this life that we have and that's been given to us and what it really is. And it's summed up in two words, eternal life. And ask the question, do you know for sure? Have you the assurance that you have eternal life? So the spirit-led life this morning and then abundant life on the 29th morning and eternal life on uh, the 29th evening. 
course, beginning tonight, as you've heard in the announcements, and for the following three weeks, Mark Anderson is going to teach on the subject, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so I thought that this morning I would kind of whet your appetite a little bit, so to speak, by looking at two passages of Scripture that reveal that there's only one way that we can live the life that God intends us to live. We can't do it ourselves. We really can't do it ourselves. And uh, we have to be empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. And so turn with me to Galatians. Paul's letter to Galatians chapter 5. Going to read some verses there. And then if you can keep a a bookmark or your thumb or something else, uh, um, a piece of paper or something in Romans chapter 8. And we'll go there in in a few minutes. But Galatians chapter 5, just reading from verse Uh, verse 16 the whole chapter is called freedom in Christ and then this passage is is entitled life by the spirit the spirit led life so I say Paul uh, has written live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature for the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature they are in conflict with each other so so that you do not do what you want But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. The acts of a sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, says Paul, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit... Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, let us be Spirit-led. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And we'll uh, end there and know that God will bless the public reading of his word. Now before we really get into the word of God concerning this, I want to caution you that there are plenty of counterfeits for the spirit-led life. I want to briefly suggest a few. Uh, And like me, you may find that you have occasionally slipped into these ways of living the Christian life because the Bible teaches that Satan is a master counterfeiter trying to pass off on on undiscerning people, a version of Christianity that that might appear to be the real thing. But how sad it would be to eventually stand before God someday and hear him declare that your experience of Christianity was a counterfeit. First of all, let me just say that one of those counterfeits is some people try to live the Christian life thinking it's all about observing a certain set of of the right rules and laws and so on. Do this and don't do that. And there are many people whose view of the Christian life is just a list of do's and don'ts, which is simply the Old Testament law warmed up and and brought back into the Christian church. And the problem with living by rules is that it can lead to legalism. And it has done in many places, in many churches. And legalism is any attempt to please God on the basis of what we do in the flesh. God has pronounced his own verdict on living this way in Isaiah 29, 13. Their worship of me, he said, is made up only of rules taught by men. 
then there's some Christians who try to live out their faith by following formulas. And they're everywhere. You know, three avenues to answered prayer and four steps to spiritual success and five ways to walk in the spirit. And there are at least two problems with formula faith. First, it can lead to a mechanical sort of Christianity. And secondly, this way of living out our faith doesn't usually last very long. It's like, like a fad. It's like, it's like a diet that's become a fad. and it, It's good at the beginning, but then it kind of fizzles out and you don't stay with it. And then another counterfeit way to live the Christian life is, uh, is a way that's very prevalent, I think, to some Christians. It's by seeking after deeply moving and emotional experiences with God. And the problem is that experiences don't last because we must eventually come off the mountain of those high emotional experiences, those mountaintops, and resume life uh, sometimes in the valley. And what do we do then? And if our everyday faith is focused on seeking experiences, then we will yo-yo our faith. Our faith will be a a yo-yo going up and down depending on the experiences that we have. And you know, while God can use conferences like the one yesterday, of course, and camps and missions and and dynamic speakers uh, that sometimes move us, those high and emotional experiences alone can't be expected to sustain our everyday faith. Perhaps the most prevalent of all the faulty and counterfeit ways in which we try to live out our faith is by by coasting or a a cruise control sort of Christianity. Settling into a mediocre, lukewarm, adequate, that'll do for me sort of Christian life. And I want you to be clear that none of those ways come close to living the spirit-led life as God really intends for us to live it. Now I want to mention one more issue uh, that I believe clouds or confuses and can even lead us into a false sense of our spiritual life. And that's when we, we revert to using what some people have called Jesus jargon <laughs> or Christian cliches. Now don't hear what I'm not saying now in the next couple of minutes. I'm not sure if it's a blessing or a curse that we have a preponderance sometimes to try and make the great truths of Scripture fit into a t-shirt slogan or into a a neat little Facebook post. And sometimes when I'm frustrated or or busy, you know, with the practicalities of life, I I do appreciate being reminded of the transcendent and comforting truths like Jesus saves. Yes, I know he does. Or God is love. Yes, I know he is. Or as we sometimes have said here, God is good all the time and all the time God is good and you knew that was coming, didn't you? I am his witness. But you know, it disturbs me that the reality of the gospel can be sometimes diluted down to these cute cliches. Because the problem with clute, clute, cute, <laughs> cute cliches is that they tend to cheapen the very things that we want to say. And these cliches presume to be clever and they claim to communicate, but often they have no substance. And sometimes not even a basis in scripture. And when we use, when used, you know, we use these things as expressions of our Christian experience, or worse still, when we speak them into somebody's life, these cute cliches, they can hinder the very spread of the gospel by inadvertently trivializing the most important issues that the gospel speaks about. So we have to be careful. Many of us, including me, You know, I have to confess that. Sometimes just repeat the cliche 
without really thinking about what the words mean. <laughs> and you know, the worst, listen, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying, but the worst Christian cliches are the ones that rhyme. Such as, where God guides, God provides. God brings you to it. He'll bring you through it. When God closes a door, he'll open a window. Let go and let God. We've all heard them. We've maybe all used them. Maybe they've been spoken to us in certain circumstances. Did you ever think that maybe God didn't bring you to it at all? But you brought it on yourself? Or maybe he did bring you to it, but he's not going to bring you through it. Because he wants you to sit in it for a while and learn something. And I could go on, you know, about praying a hedge of protection around people. Or we say the Lord never gives you more than you can handle. But maybe you can have a conversation over lunch after church about your worst pet peeve Christian cliche which people use and why. Because here's the danger. You and I can say the cutest right things about what living the Christian life is all about, yet our hearts, our own hearts, can be far from God. And it's easy to fall into a superficial faith when, you, when, when our real need and, and God's intention for us is to be living deep, deep in him. And we can fool others and we can even fool ourselves by, by simply saying the right words or using the right cliches, but we can't fool God. Remember it was God who said in Isaiah 29, 13, These people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And now, you know, before you really do feel offended about what I've just said, let me quickly say that there's some truth in each of those little Christian cliches. And while even rules can be good, formulas can be helpful, Exciting experiences with God can be life-changing, but taken alone, they can lead to a substandard Christian life because they tend to lead away from the one person God has given us. Better than rules, better than formula, better than experience, God has given us the Holy Spirit. The reality is that living the Christian life is impossible if we try to live it without the Holy Spirit's power and enabling and the life of faith is impossible without that empowering and leading of the Holy Spirit. What we read from uh, what Paul wrote in Galatians 5 leads us to ask this question. If it's easy for us to default into one or more faulty ways to live out our faith, how can I live? How can I really live the Spirit-led life that God intends for me? Somebody has, has said that uh, living the Christian life is like the difference between traveling in a car or on an electric train. Car runs on the storage principle. You put petrol or diesel in the tank, and as you drive it, you burn the fuel, and when you're out of fuel, you get more. You get tanked, you get filled up again. And so you, you travel more, but then you run low again, and you burn some more fuel, and then you have to get more fuel, and you're constantly running and stopping, running and stopping, filling and refilling. The electric train, however, runs on the third rail contact principle. You have the two rails on the outside, and the electrified third rail is in the middle, usually above. And as long as the train stays in contact with the third rail in the middle, it will go and go and go and never stop. 
It's a contact principle. Too many people think that living the Spirit-led life is like riding in a car. You get filled with the Holy Spirit and then you get run down. You kind of leak, if you like. And then you get filled up again and you get run down again. And they're constantly up and down being filled and emptied and refilled and all of that uh, stuff. And many of us do that. But that's not the, the Christian life of the New Testament. As we seek to live by the Spirit, our job is to stay in contact with the Holy Spirit. Because he's the one who continuously provides the power that we need for effective, Spirit-led Christian living. Dr. Robert Mounts, a theologian, once said, How to be led, live in, and live by the Spirit is the single most important lesson a believer can ever learn. And perhaps more than any other passage... Paul's teaching in Romans 8 gives us a framework for living the Spirit-led life. So if you've kept your Bibles open at at, at Romans chapter 8, this is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. I'm sure it's one of yours as well, but uh, have your Bible open there. I just want to read uh, through some of this passage uh, as we look at it. You know, Paul uses the word Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, or Spirit's, small s, 21 times in this chapter. At least 18 times to refer to the Holy Spirit. More than in any any and all of his writings. And so in Romans 8 we have Paul's fullest discussion of the Spirit-led life. And it begins, this chapter begins with no condemnation. And if you go to the end of the chapter, it ends with no separation. And in between there's no defeat for the believer. Hallelujah. And there are two primary Uh, doctrinal truths found here in Romans chapter 8 the doctrine of Christian assurance and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because Romans 8 is the heartbeat of what the Bible has to say about the spirit-led life so let me read to you the first uh, first four verses to begin with Paul says therefore there is no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. You know, the best news that you could ever hear as a believer of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus is Romans 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And I suggest that you could even write that verse out. You could stick it where you can see it constantly and read it every day because it's the foundation of all spiritual progress and the spirit-led life. That sentence beginning with the word therefore, you know, it it begs the question, what's it there for? Um, summarizes the last part of the previous chapter. Chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. Read it when you go home. Where Paul basically said, you know, in my mind I want to please God. I want to be spirit-led, if you like. But there is something in me that makes me want to do the opposite. And over and over again he says, that which I would do, I don't do. And that which I hate to do, I do. And we all understand that experience, I'm sure, this morning. Don't we? a little uh, slide coming up now Uh, the next slide there can you read that I'll read it for you dear God so far today I've done all right I haven't gossiped 
lost my temper, I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. Thanks God, the bed. on, I'm probably going to need a lot more help. Right? No. In the morning we get up and we say, Lord, this is the day that you have made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I'm going to be your servant and do your will today. We say, Lord, with your help, I'm not going to lose my temper today. But we've lost it. Well, we're getting the children ready to go out in the morning for school over breakfast or something. Lord, help me with my critical spirit. But by half ten in the morning, we're slicing and dicing someone. We're talking about them, you know, at work or over the garden fence, as it were. Lord, help me not to gossip. But by the time we get to the afternoon, we've blown that one as well. Things that we said we were going to do, we don't do. And the things we said we would never, ever do, some of us have lived that experience of doing those things. Amongst other things, Romans chapter 7, the previous chapter here, is Paul's autobiography of his experience as a Christian believer. And I'm glad that this great teacher, this great missionary was able to be brutally honest. Saying that even though he was an apostle, he felt a struggle between his desire to please God and, to, and, the, and the pull of the flesh. Romans 7 describes a struggle which is part and parcel of our walk with God. But thank God it's not the whole story. But it is part of the story. And that's why when Paul says in verse 24, Oh wretched man that I am, he's not just talking about himself, he's talking about me and he's talking about you. We struggle in many different ways, don't we? We struggle between what we know and what we actually do. We struggle between our better desires and doing our lesser desires. We, we struggle between what we know God wants us to do and to be and what we would rather do or be. If God would just leave us alone, we'd be all right, we think sometimes. We struggle, we're torn this way and that way, but that's part of what it means to live in this sin-cursed world. Although some people don't want to hear the truth and would rather hear the, the feel-good message of some teachers, which isn't true to what the Word of God says. And anyone who tells you that struggle doesn't belong in the Christian life is a, it's a non-biblical view of what it means to live the Christian life. Often there's nothing deeply wrong, of course, if we're going through a period of struggle. It's just, as I said, part and parcel of what it means to live on this earth. And that's why Paul wants to reassure us that no matter what, as those who are saved, he begins in Romans 8 with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. In fact, everything he says all the way through verse 39 is simply a restatement of no condemnation. Now notice he's not saying there is therefore no cause for condemnation. That wouldn't be true. You fail and I fail. We stumble, we, we fall, we get off the narrow way and Sometimes we're barely making it in the Christian life. Paul is not saying there is no cause for condemnation in us because if God were to look down from heaven and were to judge us moment by moment, he'd find plenty of cause for condemnation in you and me, right? I know he would in me. We may stumble and we may fall. We may make a, make a thousand mistakes. We may sin and we do and we go astray. But for the believer in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation because God has said it so. He will not condemn those who are in him. 
When Jesus saved you, he didn't say that he would take away all of your struggles, all of your problems, but he did say that in your problems, there is no condemnation. In your struggles, there is no condemnation. In your failures, there is no condemnation. Even in your going astray, there is no condemnation. You belong to me. God's not going to reject you because you struggle. You remember the story of the prodigal son. Remember the, the, the testimony of Peter himself who denied Jesus. These are beautiful word pictures of our experience as believers. There's no rejection for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will welcome us home again. And home again all who wander and who stray. Even those who have been living a long time in the far country. And may be embarrassed because they've squandered the spiritual inheritance that God has given them. But as soon as they return to him in repentance and in confession and recommit to loving him, he will welcome them home. There will be no condemnation. Sometimes we make the same dumb mistakes over and over again, don't we? We repent by God's grace. Our eyes are open to see what we've done and we confess to God and to others. God will graciously help us to move forward again. Maybe here this morning and you may be scared to death to turn back because you think God's going to condemn you because of what you've been involved in, what you've been doing, what you've been watching. Remember, God already knows everything that you've done and everything you've ever dreamed of doing. And he loves you anyway. The moment you say, I will arise and I will go to my father, in that very moment he'll say, hey, kill the, calf, kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. My son was lost and has been found. My daughter was away. And now she's come home again. No condemnation also means there's no punishment. Well, there's discipline. And there's correction. And that might be painful. But when we fail or we fall, God is willing to help us back up again. To tell us where we went wrong. Where we broke contact with him. If we're willing to listen. And then he puts us back on the track again. I don't know of any truth more important more satisfying, more liberating than the great truth that for those who know Jesus Christ there is no condemnation. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. Why? Because your sins are gone. Why? Because Jesus condemned sin by his death on the cross. And Charles Spurgeon says it quite simply, if our debt was paid, it was paid and, there, and, and there's, that's an end to it. A second payment cannot be demanded. God's declaration is that is a condemnation of sin in us, not condemnation of us as sinners. The devil condemns us day in and day out and whispers in our ear, condemned. Just think what you've done, you're condemned. Just think of what you said, you're condemned. But God says, no condemnation. Who are you going to believe? The devil or God? You'll have to make your own mind up, but as for me, I'm going to believe what God has said. Amen? No condemnation. All this is Paul's way of telling us that we should not lose our focus on what God has done, reminding us that as Christians, being in Christ, we are free from the condemnation we would otherwise rightly and justly deserve, and we have been given freedom. Paul says it in verse 2 of chapter 8, because through Christ Jesus the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. You know, in, uh, on Friday... I'll be in Dublin Airport and I'll look out and I'll see a big 747 plane that I'm going to board, hopefully. Uh, sitting on the runway. And you know, 
if you've ever looked at, at those planes and you realize it weighs more than you can even imagine, if you were to apply the law of gravity to that fact, then it's impossible for that plane to get off. Its own weight, plus maybe 300 passengers, plus all the luggage and baggage that they have, you'd think it's impossible for that plane to fly. But when you look at the power of its engines and you watch it take off, you realize there's a higher law in force, which doesn't deny the law of gravity, but it supersedes it. The law of sin and death still works in our flesh, but it's superseded by the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Amen. The spirit gives us freedom so that we don't, listen, we, we, we no longer have to sin. Which is to say that if we do sin, we have no excuse. We're choosing to do so because we don't have to live that way any longer. Warren Wearsby, the great commentator of, of, of Scripture, says this, freedom doesn't mean that I'm able to do whatever I want to do. That's the worst kind of bondage. Freedom means I've been set free to become all that God wants me to be, to achieve all that God wants me to achieve, and to enjoy all that God wants me to enjoy. Notice how Paul then adds in verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. What a tremendously liberating double truth that is. We're not condemned for our sin, and neither are we constrained to sin, because in Christ we're free to live the spirit-led life God intends for us to live. Amazingly, in verse 4, Paul says that Jesus is our sin offering in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. All of God's righteous requirements have been fully fulfilled in us through Christ. And we no longer have to be dominated by sin because the moment we confess Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit came to dwell within us to help us to live the life that God expects us to live. Who we are in him. Anderson in his book Victory Over the Darkness says understanding our identity in Christ is absolutely essential to our ability to live the victorious Christian life. And following these great foundational truths that we need to accept and believe in Romans 8 verses 5 through 17 Paul now moves to remind us of three gifts of the Holy Spirit that are given to every believer at the moment of conversion. And he's careful to tell us not to seek them, but listen, rather to live the Christian life on the basis of the fact that they've already been given to us. Let me uh, read verses 5 through 8. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the na that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Notice all the times that the word mind has been used here. Paul's saying that there are two ways of living in this world. We can live according to the flesh, which leads to death, or according to the spirit, or be spirit-led, which leads to life. There's no alter alternative. There's no third way to live the Christian life. These two ways of living are diametrically opposed to each other and they're constantly moving in opposite directions. 
Did you realize that when we first came to Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian here this morning, he gave us a new way of thinking in our mind. The word mind here refers to the person's worldview, their point of reference for how they see everything else. It's how we make ethical judgments about what's right and what's wrong. It's the grid through which we, we look at everything that happens around us and to us. And everybody, Christian or non-Christian, has a worldview whether they know it or not. And there are basically only two worldviews. That's the secular or humanistic worldview. And then there's the Christian worldview. In other words, there's a Christian way of thinking. There's a Christian way of speaking. There's a Christian way of behaving. There's a Christian way of approaching the issues and, and the problems and the struggles of life. When we're saved, God gives us a new mind so that we might develop a thoroughly Christian way of thinking. Now, we mightn't talk as much about this as we should, perhaps, in evangelical or even Pentecostal circles. We tend to be much more heart-orientated. It's all about the heart. all about love. We speak more about loving God with our heart. But remember Jesus said in Mark 12, the first and greatest commandment, yes, is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So to live the Spirit-led life God intends is having your mind continually transformed. Romans 12 and 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And there's only one way in which our mind can be transformed. Only one way. It must be filled with this. It must be filled with the Word of God. Careful, intentional, repeated, Study of God's word. God give us his living word so that it would be a spiritual change agent in our minds. As we study it, it will change the way we think. As we study it, it will change the way we think. And as our thinking changes, so our life and our behavior will come into conformity to God. Oh, Jesus Christ, the renewing of our minds ought to make a difference in every area of our life and radically affect the way we approach the great, especially the great moral decisions of life and of our day. No such thing as a purely private Christian faith. It doesn't affect all of life. How can your faith be called truly Christian? That means we don't need teachers who happen to be Christians. We need truly Christian teachers who bring their faith into the classroom. We don't need businessmen who happen to be Christian. We need truly Christian businessmen who will let their faith in Christ shape every decision they make in their workplace. We don't need nurses who happen to be Christian. We need truly Christian nurses who treat patients differently because they know Christ. We don't need people who act born again on the weekends. We need people who express their Christian faith seven days a week. First used in the field of computer science, I'm told, the phrase garbage in, garbage out, really expresses a biblical principle, doesn't it? When we allow garbage into our minds, garbage will come out. If we allow godly thoughts into our minds, godly behavior will follow. Proverbs 23 and 7 says, for as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Or to put it another way, what you believe is not what you say you believe, what you believe is what you do. Now think about that for a minute. What you believe, 
It's not what you say you believe. It's what you believe what you actually do. Evidence. But simply that means that we are, we are what we think. At the risk of using a, a cliche, our out, outlook often determines our outcome. Precisely, our input determines our output. Every thought carries with it a spiritual implication because our thoughts either feed the flesh, which leads to death, spiritual death, or they feed the spirit, which leads to life and peace. And Satan has declared war on every believer and the battlefield is in the mind. And so Paul tells us to be vigilant in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought in our minds. To make it obedient to Christ. Don't let any thought in. Without capturing it first. If it's a good one. If it's a godly one. Let it come in. If not demolish it with the truth of God's word. And did you know that you'll start thinking about. What you're exposed to the most. That's why studies are now linking violence. On television and movies and video games. With violent behaviour. If it's true that we need to think about. What we think. We need to watch what we watch and we need to listen to what we're really listening to. I don't know if you've ever seen the film A Beautiful Mind, a marvellous movie uh, about John Nash who had, had a brilliant mind and he hears destructive voices in his mind and these irrational thoughts are very real to him and they play on his darkest fears and eventually he realizes that he can't listen to them as he turns to his friend and he says, I'm, I'm not that different from you. We all hear voices in our inner mind. We just have to decide which ones we're going to listen to. Right now, right now, in this moment, you have a series of thoughts flowing through your mind. Some of you are wondering when the sermon is going to end. Fortunately, too many of us allow stuff to come in without thinking about what we're allowing ourselves to think about. We're sloppy in this regard. And perhaps for far too long, uh, we who have been given new minds have been willing to check them at the door as we leave church on Sunday morning. But what a difference it would make if we began to think Christianly, act Christianly every day of the week. In other words, we must let the mind of the master be the master of our minds. As Paul says in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so Paul goes on to say, let me just read a few more verses in chapter 8 of Romans. You, however, are, not, are, not by the, are, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. What Paul's saying here is that as believers, we don't need, listen, we don't need to receive the Holy Spirit. We need to respond to the Holy Spirit whom we've already received as Christians. The issue is not getting, about getting more of the Holy Spirit but allowing the Holy Spirit to have more of us. And when we've received Christ, we've received a new nature. And the implication of this is that we have a brand new life. 
And that's the meaning of the phrase, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. The seed of death has been planted in our body because of the fall, original sin. And that's why, you know, our bodies will eventually wear out and we'll die. Our physical flesh is slowly wasting away, probably faster than we want it to. And yet God has placed life, he's placed resurrection life within us through the Holy Spirit. Dying on the outside, yet new life flowing on the inside. We live forever. And that's the wonder of the gospel where death once reigned, life now reigns within. And death is not the end for the child of God. Christians die like everybody else. And when our body is laid to rest, our spirit goes to be with Jesus. And even that's not the end. The Holy Spirit who presently lives within us is like a down payment on God's future deliverance. And when Jesus returns, our body will be raised from the dead, immortal and incorruptible and eternal and never more to die. Amen. The crux of living the Spirit-led life is then beautifully captured by Paul in the next verses, 12, 13, and 14. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, he says, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons, daughters of God. Verse 13 there, called the most important single verse on the spiritual life in the New Testament. There's God's part, if by the Spirit, and then there's our part, you put to death. Spiritual growth comes when we do our part as we rely on the Holy Spirit's enablement, as we maintain that contact with the Holy Spirit. True spirituality is neither passive, let go and let God, or entirely active, you know, I've got to do this all by myself. So let me ask this, is the spiritual life, think about this, is the spiritual life dependent on God or on me? the spiritual life depending dependent on God or on me and the answer to that question is yes positionally this has already been done Galatians 5:24 those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires positionally it's already been done but experientially you must also do it. Colossians 3 and 5. Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. What this means is that we must apply by faith what God has already done in fact. It's not an either or, but it's a both and. And it's a beautiful balance where you and I can choose to live the life God intends for us. And God has given us the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us and to empower us. And while we must do it by being led by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit also chooses then to present, to present his life through us. And so these are beautiful, complementary, not contradictory truths. Let's live it. God who works in us to do it. He has his role and we have our responsibility. We could say it this way. We can't do it without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit won't do it without our cooperation. Living the Spirit-led life is a moment-by-moment -moment dependence, contact with the Holy Spirit. 
of put-to-death attitude towards the flesh. The word flesh might be understood to mean following long-established sinful habits. And we've all got them. Often we fall back into flesh living instead of faith living. Believers, someone, listen, when you became a Christian, you became someone you never were before. You don't live like we used to. Five and 17, you know it well. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Let me end by just asking you this question. How, how consistently are you staying in contact with the Spirit? Of your mind and all of the things that we've mentioned. Spirit-led life will be consistent with the truth of God's Word. The Holy Spirit will not lead us into anything that's contrary to His Word. Spirit-led life will be consistent with His fruit. We read that in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, and all of that. We will be displaying those. Not majoring in one of them or two of them, but in all of them. Say we're all fruit basket cases. Spirit-led life will be consistent with the character of Jesus. His spirit of love and humility and meekness and service and obedience and submission and forgiveness will flow out of our lives as well. lot to live up to, but as I said at the beginning, we don't have to do it ourselves. Without doing it ourselves, we will fail. We need the enabling, empowering. That to happen, we not allow anything to come between. Sin, bad attitude, stuff that comes up, we need to confess it right away, keep a short account with God to maintain that contact with the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we'll, we'll just go, go astray will help us live.